Hello, I'm Josie Warden, Head of Regenerative Design at the RSA. And I'm Daniel Wahl, author of Designing Regenerative Cultures. You're listening to the Regeneration Rising podcast. In this series, we look at how regenerative approaches can help us build thriving communities and ecosystems and provide a better life for all on our planet. You're listening to a special series that asks how we can build a flourishing future for the long term. This is Regeneration Rising, brought to you by the RSA. Hello and welcome to the Regeneration Rising podcast. I'm Josie Warden and this is episode six in our seven-part series. We're living through a period of seemingly insurmountable challenges, from the climate crisis to global disparities of health and wealth. How can we grapple with such complex and wicked problems, collectively or as individuals? Our guests today argue that to do so, we must start in our own homes, with the places and spaces around us. We're delighted to be joined today by two leading voices in regenerative development, Pamela Mang and Jenny Anderson. Pamela is the founder of Regenesis Group, with 30 years consulting experience with businesses, governmental agencies and community groups, specialising in living systems thinking and educational and human development processes. She is a faculty member for the Regenerative Practitioner, a programme which has supported hundreds of people around the world to build their experience of regenerative development. Jenny is the founder of the Really Regenerative Centre. She works as a strategist, facilitator and educator, supporting organisations and communities to create visions for the future they want together and to find the will, energy and approaches to sustain that long-term change. Welcome Jenny and Pamela and thank you so much for joining us today. What a pleasure to be with you again, Pamela and Jenny. Today we want to talk about the importance of place. The series explores the rise of the regeneration and place is a really important concept in this. It's an everyday concept, but it can evoke and encapsulate in many different ways what it means to be regenerative. Could we start this conversation with you, Pamela? What does place mean to you and why is it so important in a regenerative approach? I think place, there's a lot of academic sort of intellectual ways I've seen place described. But in the context of, I think, human evolution, aspirations, and what can be in the world, it's really, a, for me, one of the critical pieces of place is it's a, it's a place in which we can connect a sense of belonging and a sense of the unique potential contribution we can make to the world and what we care about. So I look at it in terms of how do we work on the continuing evolution and harmonization of how humans as a species evolve in the context of this beautiful, evolving, living planet. And our places are our best opportunity to play the unique role that we are called to play. And Jenny, what makes place meaningful for you? I think that place for many people is a very subjective experience and that manifests differently in different cultures and in different places too. And for most of my working life, I actually worked at a global level uh, for global brands um, in strategic narratives and communications plans. But one of the things that you see 
about the impact of globalization is how impersonal it is and how anonymous it is and therefore how almost impossible it is to have a meaningful relationship with an entity that is so far removed from your everyday life. Now, does that matter when I buy a sweater, whether I have any connection to the people who worked on it, the place in which it was made or where the wool came from or how the sheep lived? But perhaps it doesn't. But if we think about the relationship that we have with our neighbours, if my neighbour next door builds a fence or pulls down a tree that's adjacent to me and changes my outlook and my outview and my experience of my home, there's a real potential for both people in that situation to not step up and be their best selves. And you're also called to draw on the better qualities of yourself as a human being in order to be able to have a conversation that is not fractious and not difficult. So I think there is something important about the connectivity both to nature and to other real human beings that working in place encourages us to step up and develop that first line of work improving our capacity to be a better human and also to being in right relationship with others around us. Of course, when we talk about place scale, immediately comes in as the next question. And, and I wonder what, what scale are we talking about when we're talking about place? Um, in our world, we chase abstract problems and make them ever more abstract. I have international meetings about ever more abstract problems. But the minute you focus on place, suddenly the same complexity and what designers often call wicked problems show up, the, the interconnected large problem clusters. But when you meet them through the specificity of a local landscape and real people, and suddenly inequality has a face and environmental destruction has a face and, and a specificity, then suddenly something magical happens, that, that you see all these problems, and by looking at them together through the lens of place, you can also see that there's potential in responding to all of them together. And so it, it is a way of managing complexity. Pamela, you, your colleague Ben Haggard um, likes to say place is fractal. Do you, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I'm, this conversation is making me think of a quote from Lynn Margulis that life didn't conquer the earth through combat. It was through networking. I want to go back to what I think is at the core of why we're even talking about this, which is what is the role of humans in being able to enable the continuous evolution of life that makes life possible and so rich and creative on this unique planet? And we go back to, I think, two critical pieces. We're an unusual species in that we can envision futures we want to create and move toward. It's probably one of the few, at least so far, discovered distinctions that, that we have as a species. We're certainly learning more and more that we are not the most intelligent of species. And so if that gift is also a curse if we cannot see the future in that nested and netted world 
if we can't experience the interdependence and interrelatedness that makes life rich and durable and able of continuously expressing more life. But the other dimension that we don't pay quite as much attention to is the inner dimension, which is one of inner motivation. What is it that sparks and inspirits me that brings the sort of sustained will that I will chart a path towards that envisioned future? Those are the two paths that we have to find a way to reconcile constantly, day in, day out. And that's where, for me, why we called, um, when we developed something called regenerative development, why we didn't call it regenerative design. We called it regenerative development because we are continuously trying to balance that inner development with the outer um, vision that we have. So what does place have to do with that? I think you spoke to it a little bit about what we are able to hold in the set of relationships we can see when we start to envision that future. So we can, the first step, place makes them real. They connect to something in us that we can experience them as opposed to intellectually, simply uh, like reading a textbook about the war as opposed to actually experiencing it. But they also enable us to begin to see a spark of what could be. That's that part of humans that we can envision what could be. And it's much easier to see that in a place where we can connect to to what seems real to us. And then the question is, once we see that, what's our connection to it? And when we move up to the global scale, some people may be able to, to hold on to that. I can't. I just want to come back to something Pamela said. One of the key principles that we work with in regenerative design is a deep belief that humans have a key role to play and we're not just here by accident. And at this particular moment in time, that role could be as catalysts of an evolutionary and systemic future and as stewards of life on Earth. And how would we make that contribution and where would we make that contribution? Then I think we could probably all agree that there's a real need for us to reconnect to the natural system. And we do that far more viscerally in place than we do anywhere else, because we all have to some degree an understanding of how the place we live in works or doesn't work. So we can better heal the story of separation in place because it's real and it's visceral and we, we can see change happening in place. If we look at another key principle of living systems design, it's about wholeness within a nested systems framework. So our planet is one whole complex living system, but the scale at which it works is in a series of bioregional living systems, which are in turn made up of ecosystems. So in other words, the whole living planet is made up of distinct ecology, culture and economy of places. And so if that's the scale at which life designs, we have something to think about with that. So what regenerative development really is, is regenerating the natural systems, the living systems that as a human system, we have put at risk through the way in which we've designed our economy and our way of interacting with the natural systems of the place 
but also aligning the human system with those principles, those developmental principles. And it's fusing those both those things together, the regeneration of our living systems, our natural systems, and the generative approach to developing the human spirit too, fused together, that makes regenerative development a truly unique approach, I think, to the future. Well, this is this is where I, I feel when, when Pamela was speaking about the outer work and the inner work and, and then the connection to place, I'm, I'm just wondering whether behind all this lies actually how we understand ourselves as relation, in relationship to place. And since we're talking about regenerative development here, and there's been a lot of critique that, particularly in the regenerative agriculture field, that um, people have not honored the roots of these impulses that, that are as old as life enough and are now selling regenerative as something new. And I think it's precisely in that indigenous understanding of being expressions of place, of not seeing yourself as owners of a place, but living all my relations, all relationships to all life in that place as an expression of oneself. And, and that shifts fundamentally the, the participatory awareness or, and the, 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 the consciousness or responsibility of one's own agency in that living wholeness. And Pamela, like you mentioned that you didn't when call your work regenerative design, you called it regenerative development. And since there's now so many people making that mistake of just scratching out one or two adjectives that they used to sell and put the adjective regenerative in front of whatever noun that they are focused on, is it possible to summarize in, in, in a few points that where there's really a fundamental worldview shift, a bit like that worldview shift from this place belongs to me um, to I belong to this place that happens when, when we work regeneratively? So maybe let me talk a little bit about how we hold the, the whole process of regeneration and see if we can get back a little bit to that and, and then work out from it. The, the, the term regeneration, when you go back to really what it's, its source and what it speaks to, is it speaking to go back to the source of the arising of something? What really was the original origin of a, of a human being, of a place, not physically, but in terms of the sort of core being nature that makes that, that place, that person, that or that business um, unique. So it starts with the belief that each each living system emerges into the world with a unique pattern or essence. And if if we start from that, it shifts. It begins the shift in how we see ourselves and how we see the world. And then when you look at that, and say, okay, it gets going. We get into life. We begin to get run into the kind of day-to-day -day tasks of making a living, how do we stay awake and, and appreciate who we really are in this world? We lose touch with that very quickly. And so one of the things that we do through this and what nature does through regeneration with the, all of the living beings that exist on the planet is 
process that brings us back and regenerates that goes back to the source and brings it alive and makes it meaningful again. What is it as a human that I uniquely have to contribute? And that that is what, when we start to see that and we take it next to the butcher, the, the neighbor, um, and we say, you know, there's something unique about them. And if I can stay connected to that, if I can stay connected to me, I can begin to see that if I can see the, the context we share, the system that we share. So it requires that sort of inner sense of self and what's meaningful, but then it's got to have a systemic context. And that's that sense of connecting our inner uh, sense of who we are to seeing a meaningful role in the, the, the system that we're a part of that creates that gap. That's to us is what development is about. And once we create, create that gap for ourselves or enable others to see that gap, then we've got at, uh, we're at, in a place where we can start to work on continually to evolve. Our tendency as humans is to fix a problem and then move on to something else. We create a project that we say, oh, this is going to be regenerative. A regenerative project, if you look at it developmentally, is the start of a process. Just, just briefly, because to, to highlight, because I think that's an important message when we do talk about regenerative design, that most designers are trapped in objectifying thinking, meaning um, they work, their, their project, their brief is the object, whether it's a product design or a whole transport system, a city or even a bioregion. And if we make the project the deliverable, at some point that thing is finished and we hand it over, then we just miss the point of regenerative de development or working regeneratively in design. Um, it's actually that flip out of, yes, we need to find solutions. Yes, we need to do designs and implement them and see how they work to learn from them. But what counts is the process of implementation and the capacity building in the process of creating these designs. So that, that, that's where, like, how do we keep evolution continuously going is that we're actually building the capacity of people in place to continue to respond to transformative change, both from the inner and in response to outer changes. Is, is, am I getting you right there? Yeah. What, another way of saying that is what we tend to do is to produce structures We see the, the design becomes a structure where we actually bring things together, create a structure that holds them together and say, okay, we've done our job. It's a beautiful design, can envision it as a structure. Knife needs structures, trees need trunks and bark. But what keeps a tree alive and what creates a forest and all of the life that a tree feeds are the processes, the flow of energies that move through the leaves and down through into the soil. Um, so if we look at a development project as what are the processes, the living processes that it enables in a community, in a, a family, in um, a, an organization, instead of looking at the structures that will then hold those, start with the processes and see those moving through time. And then how do we need to structure it in a way 
And what systems do we need to generate to keep that, those processes working well? It's a whole different set of sequences. As I've been listening to this, I've been thinking about the town that I'm from in Cornwall, which has just had a relatively new development kind of on the edge of it. And as we're talking about this, it's making me reflect on that. And I'm feeling like there's a sort of, there's almost a feeling that 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 development is almost dead. It feels like it's not connected to the rest of the town. And when you look at it, it's a development that could have happened anywhere, anywhere else in the UK. Um, And I think there's such a switch from we, you know, we need to build houses, which is a genuine need for the town, but also to think that in the context of what's actually the life of that place. And that feels like a very different question and might have ended up with a very different kind of development if that's the question that we'd asked. So I'm wondering if you could both talk a little bit about um, how you start to think about that uniqueness of place and to turn it and to turn it into something meaningful, because that does seem like a very challenging thing to actually achieve. Yeah, this is actually what it, it was that question that really shaped the Regenesis Group when we formed in the mid '90s. That question was re- really what shaped our work for ten years. How do we really understand if we come from a belief that all life? has a uniqueness to it, a unique pattern that it can be cultivated and and create. And that's what is the source of richness of of life on the planet. How do we do that for a place? And um, so one of the things we, over years, struggled with that and began to develop a, a way of understanding what we called, at that time, the story of place. And um, to be able to engage in that, there's a lot of people who have done some beautiful work around getting a sense of place and the uniqueness. But what we looked at is place is something that is emerges out of multiple different natures of energies coming together. And we will look at the human energies, we will look at the ecological energies, or we look at the geographic energies, but we don't tend to see how they weave together. And so the the process is one of a discovery process of being able to start to see what are the patterns in the geography, the geology, uh, the hydrology of this place over time that formed it and brought it to where it is uh, today, or where it was at its peak before maybe humans stepped in and began to flatten it all. And we can begin to see certain patterns that emerge over and over. How did humans respond to that? How did the culture emerge out of that particular unique pattern of people who live in, in um, uh, and communities that emerge in valleys tend to be very different from the, the culture of communities that emerge in deltas, um, or deserts. Each one of those, those patterns reflect the ability to harmonize with the, all of the unique energies of a place to, to create a healthy living system. So one of the things we start with is just simply asking people, begin to think about what they love about their place. We have a set of simple questions to get people to connect to. But then we begin to put that into a sense of patterns and start to see a mirroring of these patterns. And that's 
So it's a process that people begin to get intrigued, appreciating, see things as they walk around their place that they never saw before. Jenny does this a lot with folks. But there are a lot of processes for being able to engage with people, step back and engage people with place as a whole. And Jenny, would you be able to give us an example of this approach? Um, I can try. Um, I can try a couple of examples of how we see patterns and stories and how and why they become meaningful. So often what we're looking for is something we call a correlating trajectory across patterns of ecology, economy and culture in a place over time, um, mirroring as Pamela uh, described it. So we take Jersey in the Channel Islands. Most people know Jersey as a tax haven, but it is a lot more than that. We could also ask the question as to why, given all of the other possibilities, an economy based on being a tax haven developed in that particular place. So Jersey has a long-standing pattern of havening. It's been a haven for escaping royalty from England. Charles II escaped when uh, um, Oliver Cromwell chopped the head off his father and took over the rule of uh, the country at the time. It's been a haven for literary communities and religious communities escaping persecution on the European continent. It has a real tradition of accepting and absorbing diversity in the island, which is actually mirrored in the diversity of the geology you find there, for example. It has many different patterns of creating exponential impact from something small. In its more recent economy, we, we can take the example of the Jersey Royal Potato or the Jersey Dairy Cow, uh, which is currently the subject of a partnership between the government of Jersey and Rwanda to create a new pattern of economic growth for women in agriculture there in the post-genocide environment. And an island with these really rich Fibonacci-like patterns, you might expect in our current particular time when financial wealth is what our culture venerates and prioritises, would develop a capacity to create exponential wealth and therefore be a tax haven. But that doesn't mean that that pattern can't change and develop into something new and different, more purposeful, more in, in tune with the relationships of living systems. If we look at the city of Utrecht in the Netherlands, for example, in the 11th century, it was a really important religious and cultural hub in the Netherlands. And people, philosophers came from all over the continent to gather in Utrecht to explore the future together. It was a, a nerve centre also for travel all around the low countries. Almost all roads led to Utrecht. And all that became a bit superseded by Amsterdam in the Middle Ages as trade began to change patterns in Europe. It is once again taking up that older pattern as a nerve centre and central hub by focusing its economy on transport mobility and health. It's the centre of rail transport in uh, the Netherlands, but it's also really building a reputation for uh, being a centre of, of urban health in the 21st century. And Doncaster, which has recently become a city in the UK, has a similar pattern in its history. And in fact, so does Atlanta in Georgia, as an example. So if we go back to Jersey, there's a great example in a small social enterprise I've been mentoring there called Scoop, which was founded by a brilliant woman called India Hamilton and Casper Wimberley. 
And Scoop has set out to unblock a couple of systemic barriers to a sustainable food system on the island of Jersey, which is is a place that has uh, very little food security. And they focused on the exclusion of small organic farmers from the market because that's a market that's dominated by wholesalers and multiples, but also to address the local people's relationship to healthy, nutritious food. So the cooperative invites people to become members in a place in which they can shop for food, which is grown and sourced on the island, but also other nearby places uh, in a sustainable way. And in one simple way, by using the organic farmer's cover crops to create a green pesto, you can make pesto from just about anything green, um, they created an income for the produce for the farmers, but they also introduced the idea of non-standard mechanised ingredients into the food experience of locals, because most of us think, you know, you have to make pesto with parsley. Um, So Scoop works at the intersection of inclusiveness, food systems, healthy nutrition, fairness, and designed a project to unblock those flows in Jersey. And the success of Scoop in creating an alternative food experience and an alternative market for the production of food has really attracted the interest interest in India's work from all over the world, but also attracted the interest of the Jersey government to look at what they could learn to apply to other systems. Um, And India is also running a new food systems lab on Jersey at the moment and participating uh, in one in Scotland too. So that's a beautiful description of what a developmental process can create. And where we start a developmental process is not by teaching people new techniques new ways of growing materials, looking at market analysis, but by enabling them to begin to see that they have something unique to bring. And we try to get people connected to larger systems in a whole variety of ways. But you just described that's one process that we can use is to begin to see our role in it. It's actually making me think of an example of some work that we did at the RSA recently in the city of Leeds in the UK. We were working with a local organisation who'd had the council come to them and say, we need to reduce the amount of textile waste that's going into landfill because that's causing problems for them. And we actually, when we were talking to this organisation, Zero Waste Leads, and working through the problem, we actually were thinking more that the, the question is less about how can we kind of reduce the stuff going into landfill and actually how can we totally reframe the question of what role does clothing have in a city like Leeds today and how can we change the way that we engage with it across the whole lifetime, not just at the kind of end of life. And it's actually a city that grew up around the wool trade. Textiles has been inherent in its history. And so we ended up reframing the question away from preventing things going into landfill to actually what role could a city like Leeds play in changing the future of fashion and that totally changed then the conversation that we had with local organizations and local stakeholders from being focused around a a problem into actually something that was about imagination and creativity and tied more into the spirit of the city and innovation and, and that kind of way of moving forward so it's a very different kind of question and conversation that would normally happen And it felt very different to what normally is asked in the city around clothing, which is generally how can we be the next kind of big retail destination? So that 
that conversation really changed the ways of thinking and it opened up this space for creativity. And I think that's a really interesting way of reframing things. But we were also really conscious that we needed to be careful of not moving into a sort of protectionist space where we need to figure out what works for here and not not worry about anywhere else. But that kind of sense of localism that can be connected to other areas too felt really important. So I'm wondering in your work, how do you move away from that kind of protectionism feeling and not romanticise the idea of everything having to happen locally, but recognising the need to look after our local areas while simultaneously collecting that to that global whole that we keep talking about? So I think we've just been talking about what it's almost magical, the, the growth and spirit, the shift in an energy field that we're all working in when we can at least make that connection between ourselves and the next system up that we're a part of. But life is, is, um, doesn't stop there. And so how do we begin to connect that understanding of the system we've now come to care about? How do we start to see that it requires the same kind of connectivity to the next system out, that it's interdependent? Um, in the same way that, that our creativity and ability to, to be significant and live a meaningful life connects to leads, what is the system that leads sits within that, is, that it has a unique contribution to give to? So we, it's the same pattern, but we're building the, cap- the need to develop the capacity of people to hold at least three nested systems. And one of the premises in, in the work we do with the regenerative practitioner is the minimum to be able to work regeneratively and bring consciousness that we need to develop is the capacity to hold three levels of nested systems in mind as we are designing and thinking. And you've just, Josie, lifted up why. Because if we stop at the immediate proximate system that we're a part of, that we're actively engaged in, we can make uh, tangible, the tendency is to the want to protect it, to keep it this, you know, the same. And uh, until we can bring alive that sense of interdependence, we're always going to fall back into that reactive sense of protect what we've going because we don't see the necessary life-giving exchanges that need to occur at each of those levels. This example made me think of one of the issues around examples. Um, Pamela, you, you must face this a lot, that people say, well, give me a case study where you've done your work. Um, show, show me that regenerative project that, where you've been involved for 10, 15 years. And, um, and they, they ask that question pretty much with the intention of saying, well, if we only have a good example, we can keep copying it. We look what they did there and then we, we do it here. And, and that's impossible when you work from a regenerative development point of view. So, so how do we get beyond this hunger for show me a case, show me an example, and still find ways of communicating this work in ways that, that actually land with people who don't have the patience to, for example, um, do a course and really enter into the practice. Yeah, the, the power of examples is it lights up what could be in somebody's mind. What it doesn't necessarily do is develop the capacity for understanding 
what went on and how it could be relevant to what I'm working on here now. And it's bridging that gap that I think is the work we need to do. But if we can find ways to start to talk about and um, use examples, not what they produced in our, and the structure that they created and what's ongoing, but how did that come about? What created it? How did the nature of understanding get developed? How did things shift that allowed people to do that? What was the, the transitions, the transformations that occurred that led to that? And if we can build the capability, make those as fascinating as the, the end result itself, then I think we have an entree because the next step then is not to leave it there, but to give to ask people to engage in how would you start to look around you or what you're working on? And here, this is where our work is, I think, is a, is a core to our work. Give them what we call a systemic, dynamic systemic framework to, work, to look through. Because we all use frameworks that give us a way to structure what we see and how we relate to it. But so often those are more linear, flat frameworks. A list is a framework. We do this, then we do that. So protocols are frameworks that develop out of what's the appropriate sequence of steps to do. But a systemic framework enables us to hold what are the key dynamic relationships that we need to think about as, to see something as a whole, but we can move around it and see those different parts. So I, it's like, tell the story from the standpoint of the changes, the transformations that occurred to create that wonderful result, then give people a way, to, a lens to be able to look at their own um, situation with questions that come out of that framework. Thank you, Pamela and Jenny. Thank you so much for this conversation and thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed episode six of our seven part series, Regeneration Rising. If this episode has inspired your thinking, please check out the show notes for links and resources and to find out how you can be part of the regeneration.